Welcome to Pop and Lock. I'm Natalie Dalzicki. And I'm Landry Years. Catherine Bigelow's 2008 Academy Award-winning film, The Hurt Locker, follows an explosive ordnance disposal team in Iraq. It is a deeply personal film as we vividly witness the stress of combat. Here to discuss whether or not this film is an accurate depiction of war is Cato Institute's Director of Defense Policy Studies, Eric Gomez. Hello. And Emma Ashford, a former Catoite and current resident senior fellow with the New American Engagement Initiative in the Socroft Center for Strategy and Security at the Atlantic Council. Hey, everybody. So a lot of veterans after watching this movie specifically cited that while it is a great movie and it is still generally considered to be one of the finest war movies ever made specifically for this war, um, they criticized its accuracy and and said that specifically these types of units and the the chaos that ensues and the the sort of wild card hot shot uh character that jeremy renner plays would just never ever happen in a real unit so why do you think it's still considered one of the best war films ever made specifically by by veterans, even though they criticize the verisimilitude of it. So, I mean, I I guess I'll I'll start here. Um, So, I mean, neither myself nor I believe Eric has ever actually been to war. So, you know, you should you should take our responses here with with a grain of salt. But from from speaking to those people who have been and sort of reading some of the reviews of this movie, um, you know, the, the impression that I came away with is that veterans don't think that any sort of individual scene of the movie is necessarily um, inaccurate or, um, you know, entirely implausible, um, except maybe the bit where Jeremy Renner jumps the fence and goes walk about Baghdad, which does seem <laughs> a little Jason Bourne-like. Um, but that when you string all of these very um, high adrenaline moments together, you end up with this really distorted picture of just sort of how... Um, you know, you know for how terrifying war is on a daily basis. This this movie basically skips the parts of being deployed to somewhere like Iraq and Afghanistan that are boredom, right? So, you know, in a in a year's deployment, maybe one of the vignettes in this movie might be accurate, um, but they wouldn't happen every day. And I, I, you know, that is sort of what I've taken away from my conversations about this this movie with with people that have actually been to to Iraq and Afghanistan is that it's just it's amped up to to make it a better movie, but but it's not entirely accurate as a result. I also wonder, you know, I, I agree with what Emma said in terms of it shows. You know, that's just good filmmaking, though, right? Right. Like a, a movie about that's like hours of just boredom punctuated by terror probably doesn't make for a a good uh, popcorn. Something eat popcorn too, um, even if it is more realistic. I, I, in terms of the realism too, one thing I thought about while watching this is that this, you know, this seems like a movie that you you can really only make about Iraq. I, I know EOD units have been involved in a lot of wars that the United States have fought in, but for the time period that it was examining, which was 2004 Iraq pre-surge, um, IEDs were a really, really big problem um, in Afghanistan too, but I think much more so in Iraq in terms of, it was probably like the one of the leading causes of death and injury for American troops in the country. So um, and that's a very, you know, that's a pretty different way of 
combat or, or a different way of um, war than, you know, even 91 Gulf War or Vietnam War or, you know, something that's a little bit more firefight focused. Um, this really was, you know, the movie I think is, does a good job of highlighting that aspect of the Iraq War, um, which was a very important part of it. I'm also kind of curious, since we're talking kind of about the landscape and timing of um, the movie's depiction, how like how many teams like this were in Iraq at one time? Like, are are these like these groups of teams are like typical per unit, right? Um, so I'm kind of curious, like how many Jeremy Renners were out there, right? Because I think from the movie we get like a very like personal connection to like quite a few soldiers in their unit, but we don't necessarily see them interacting too much with any like the larger um like macro picture of the iraq war i mean so off the top of my head i don't have like exact numbers of sort of bombness but 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 you know hundreds probably thousands depending on the time period of the war that that we're talking about um you know so uh, iraq and Afghanistan look quite different in terms of troop numbers. Um, Afghanistan, even once we get to the surge in the late 2000s, is is much less than Iraq, just because it's a less populous country, a smaller country, um, and because some of these issues, the, the IEDs were a thing in, in Afghanistan, but as Eric notes, it wasn't as prevalent or as problematic. Um, so, you know, in Afghanistan, we're talking, you know, tens of thousands of troops. Um, in Iraq, particularly by the time we get to the peak of the surge, we have, you know, close to, depending on how you count it, close to 100,000 or, or more troops. Um, certainly more if you include the the troops on bases in the region that are supporting it, you can get up to 200, 300,000. Um, so this is very widespread. And so this film dials down on basically the lives of you know, three central characters, I guess I would say, you know, there's a lot of incidental people that come and go. Um, but it's basically three guys on this bomb disposal team. And as, as sort of as your question really gets at, this uh, team structure would be replicated hundreds of times over and over um, in any discrete period of time. And many of these men rotated back to Iraq and Afghanistan multiple times over the course of the war. To sort of illustrate how dangerous the IEDs were, to the United States troop presence. The movie was set in 04 and that is before MRAPs get introduced. Those are like mine resistant ambush protected. I think I, I don't always remember the full acronym. <laughs> mine resistant ambush protective vehicles. Ambush protective. Yes. Okay. Um, so the problem was that the, the trucks that the United States get sent into, right? The Humvee, you know, if you know what a Hummer looks like, you have a pretty good idea of what a Humvee looks like. Those things got just totally shredded apart by IEDs. They were not resistant to, uh, you know, driving over an explosive and a lot of They were American... weak on the bottom in particular. Yes. Mm. And so that's part of why this, you know, when you're doing a lot of these sort of patrols in urban areas where it's easy to hide, um, you know, old artillery shells and, and trash or rubble or rubbish or whatever, it's really easy to destroy, you know, one Humvee at a time if they drive if they drive through where these IEDs are. And I mean it got to the point where the United States had to create like an, a new government, not quite an agency, but an organization just to deal with this problem, 
um, called the Joint Improvised Threat Defeat Organization, uh, which was founded in 2006 solely to deal with IEDs, pretty much. And it's now under the Defense Threat Reduction Agency. The Defense Threat Reduction Agency usually handles weapons of mass destruction. Um, it, it, is, it is the DOD agency that works with nuclear weapons, chemical and biological, um, and IEDs. Uh, <laughs> so it was a very big problem until um, MRAPs came in. And MRAPs, you know, the, one of the big things of why they're resistant to IEDs is the shape of them um, underneath is such that the force of a blast isn't just hitting squarely against the bottom of the vehicle, but is somewhat more dispersed or channeled. Um, so yeah, this was a really big problem. And that's why my earlier comment like this, you know, if you're, if you're talking about what movie can you make that is very unique to the Iraq experience, I think The Hurt Locker, more than any other movie about the Iraq War that I've seen, nails that because of the problem of IEDs and and how they were such a big menace to U.S. troops. I think it did a great job of narrowing in on that aspect of the conflict and showing the the sort of tension and the stakes of um, trying to do or trying to defeat them. And the movie really plays with it really plays with tension and stakes throughout. It is not super indulgent in its violence. Um, there's a lot of further discussion you could make about when it does indulge in violence and to what ends, um, whose deaths and the violence it is being inflicted upon, does it indulge in certain emotional sort of valences, is I think what you could talk about. Um, about what it's saying about war and conflict and things like that. Um, but it also, the, the movie sort of eschews a lot of these standard um, tropes that we see in a lot of previous war films. And as, you know, specifically with, I think, particularly Vietnam and and, and since then a lot of, you know, as film, as a medium, has sort of come into its own um, during these, you know, types of conflict, uh, you're getting a more postmodern and nuanced look at what it means to go into armed conflict at this level. Um, and so you don't necessarily get pro or anti-war. One of the things that it issues in particular is a classic dramatic structure. Um, it, it takes place in much more of a vignette structure, like Emma had had mentioned before. What does that structure do for the movie? What is it trying to say about what these characters are going through? Because to me, it it reads almost as a rejection of heroic narratives. You don't get this Joseph Campbellian hero of a thousand faces going out to war undergoing trials, you know, fighting back all of these, you know, terrible monsters and things like that, only to return back home to America and make your country better. You don't get this full cycle hero's journey. It is a series of elaborate, tense, ultimately, I would say, anticlimactic set pieces that are connected and flow into one another but really, there is very jagged and not classic dramatic structures to any of these acts going on. What does that do to the movie? 
you know, there's something really, the, the, the anticlimactic comment just made me think there's something really interesting about setting bomb techs as the core characters in your movie, because almost by definition, uh, if they're going to survive, it cannot be climactic, right? It's always going to be this, they cut the wire and suddenly everything's okay. Um, and there's times in the movie where they, they succeed at that. And then there's times in the movie, particularly in the, the opening sequence, where they really don't succeed. Um, but sort of back to your you know, back to your question, I guess, about the the unconnected nature of the film. Um, I mean, it, it really doesn't have a plot. There is oh, there is no plot to this movie, yeah. none at all. Um, you know, and insofar as it reminds me of anything, it reminds me slightly of Groundhog Day, right? It's just, <laughs> but it's, I mean, not, not the yeah. same thing, not exactly the same thing over and over, right? But it's very similar. It's just, oh, another day, another incident. Um, you know, and really the only sort of overarching element is, you know, that you see the days counting down what's left on their deployment. And one of the specialists is, is keeping track of that. Um, you know, and, and I, I mean, at the time, this movie, Catherine Bigelow, um, was sort of hailed for producing a movie about the war on terror that was apolitical, that wasn't trying to make the point that war is bad. Um, and, and, you know, that's a product of its era of the mid 2000s of, you know, patriotism was supporting the war kind of an era. Um, but in retrospect, watching this movie with these disconnected narrative scenes, um, you know, Maybe I'm just reading my own opinions into this, but it seems to me as if it's a metaphor for the entire war on terror, right? It's just another day, same thing. Why are we doing it? The movie doesn't clarify that. Um, the characters don't seem to know. No one really seems to care. And that is, I think, very emblematic of where the war on terror has, has sort of come to in the last, you know, 20 years. In addition to that, I, I have several sort of micro and macro points in terms of micro points. I think that the way it's structured, it might just be again, very immersive for, you know, putting you in the shoes of the bomb team. Um, I found a great article or a great review um, in vanity fair that talked about the movie with Iraqi EOD guys, and then sort of got their sense of like, as an Iraqi EOD person, how do you feel about the movie? And this one quote I have saved, um, for Ahmed and Rashid, the need for that kind of unwavering focus seems strangely divorced from or marked by an indifference to the broader conflict. The men regard themselves as technicians tasked with making bombs safe. And in their tunnel vision, people and politics are relegated to the periphery. The terrorists and insurgents who make the bombs are not important to the task. The men say they have little interest in the identity or motives of the men who created the weapons, preferring to leave such questions for the intelligence unit. And I think that that speaks to what Emma said about the sort of apolitical nature of the movie, where, you know, if this is about immersing yourself in an experience that's very unique to Iraq, that of the counter IED um, explosive ordnance disposal guys, then yeah, probably most of them, you know, if the Iraqi experience is to be believed, they aren't thinking about those broader political questions in the moment of diffusing. But I, I wonder, and I think in that regard, it's, I think this movie is both a successful and unsuccessful war movie. It's successful in the sense that, you know, I think it does a great job showing this slice of life of, of soldiers in Iraq and, and really sort of putting the audience in the shoes of what they go through. But it, I think it fails because 
You know, it never it never really gets into those broader questions. The only real moment um, that it does is when um, early on in the movie, when Sergeant James is walking towards his first bomb to dispose, um, and then there's like a cab that runs a checkpoint, and the driver like sort of pulls right up at him, and Sergeant James pulls out a pistol and shoots out the windshield and then shoots at the ground and then puts the gun to the cab driver's head and tells him to back up because he doesn't know if there's a bomb in the car. And the guy does. And while he's just glaring down Sergeant James, and then he gets instantly like yanked out of the car by a bunch of U.S. troops and handcuffed. And Sergeant James quips that, well, if he wasn't an insurgent, he sure as hell is now. Um, and I thought that was a that was about the only sort of political commentary on on the war of like, you know, is is the action of of you know being in Iraq and doing that and treating um, Iraqis that way who might be confused or um, don't understand English and therefore can't really respond to warnings? Um, does that create more problems in the long run for the United States and the global war on terror? Um, but besides that, it doesn't really, like Emma said, it doesn't really touch on the bigger political issues. Um, so I, I wondered after watching the movie, like, is this a movie you can make now, right? Like you could make it in 09. Um, but now that, you know, you've added 11 more years or whatever onto the, the forever wars and us presence in the middle East, I think most American audiences would just be like, you know, Oh, like we want to deal with the the broader implications of this and we don't want to, you know, we're kind of tired of it. I wonder, I mean, yeah, you could make it in 09. I mean, you could make it today. I mean, it w- it would be very, very different. I, I think you could make an argument, and I read into this only really having, after having just watched it, again, I did not get this the first time, you could make an argument that I think... What is his name? Uh, the the doctor, uh, Lieutenant Colonel John Cambridge, um, that he he is one of the only people. There's there's really only a handful of people from outside this unit that we get these people interacting with, um, and and he's one of them, and he's at this uh, at this base with them, um, and he knows particularly uh, Eldridge very very well, and is sort of counseling him after the the sort of death of the uh, guy pierce character from the very very beginning and but he's constantly kind of trying to fix eldridge for for you know and he treats him like a commodity he is a tool and so there is i think there is a very like overt to me political message about what this person who has essentially been put there by the state to sort of be eyes and ears and also say hey fix up these guys so that they can get back out there as soon as they can um uh, at least that's what it read like to me specifically like because because you could also make the argument that a lot of the people that are in positions like that specifically you know like military chaplains or people who are you know psychiatrists like they are in it for the right reasons i don't want to like paint it like anything like that but he specifically says at one point uh to his character he's like going to war is a is a is a once in a lifetime experience it could be fun and i was like Oof, like what an out of touch, strange thing to say to this very, very young, impressionable, obviously traumatized young man that is going through all of this. And then you we don't see him 
any other times throughout the movie except for when he's talking to Eldridge and trying to encourage him to get back out there. And then when he's talking to the people out on the street about the the like the rocks in the cart and he he very much plays it like he's like the out of touch like uh pr guy or like guy from up like from up the chain who came down and is like i'm here to you know get some boots on the ground and uh you know see see what the people who are you know doing the the hard work are doing every day and he's trying to be very diplomatic and talk to these people and because this is what said in what 2004 he's he's winning hearts and minds at that point during you know this part of the campaign and he immediately gets blown up and whereas you know jeremy renner and anthony mackie and all of them who are the ones you know, going around every day, getting into these high stakes scenarios are the ones who are sort of in touch with the realities of war. So while it may not make a specifically political message about the Iraq war specifically, it does make one, I think, overtly about what that type of conflict means generally. But by focusing on the EOD teams, you could make the argument that that itself focuses on the Iraq war. So let me let me just jump in on um so I was very struck by the the arc of of Colonel Cambridge who who as you say is this like you know uh, they make a joke about Yale I don't know that he's actually Yale educated but he's clearly you know went to college joined the military he's over in the Middle East as you say winning hearts and minds bringing freedom bringing democracy and um he's trying to counsel the young specialist who's again clearly working class clearly joined up very early um you know and and the specialist Eldridge is terrified of dying he thinks he's going to die. And Cambridge isn't scared of dying. And I just find it so fascinating that, you know, that, that Cambridge is the one that then the minute he's sort of outside the fence, he's the one that ends up dying. Um, the thing that he wasn't scared of because he thought he was just there to, to win hearts and minds. And so I found him, him really interesting. Um, you know, but the other, uh, the other command that we see, um, the other colonel who comes in, um, who congratulates Jeremy Renner's character right. on, on defusing a bomb. Um, and he's uh, problematic in other ways, right? So he is, weird. Yeah, so ugh. Just kind of macho. Gross. Yeah, macho hopped up on his own um, adrenaline mythos, you know, congratulating, um, you know, the, this character for taking actions that put all his teammates in danger. Um, and I just, I find it really interesting that those two characters, those are the representations of command that we see. You know, Wild Bill Hickok on the one side, um, trying to get everybody killed, and, you know, hearts and minds college educated on the other um and you know i feel like that might almost be one of the more accurate parts about the film that that you know that the command was somewhat um disassociated from the lower ranks yeah especially because that second one in particular he he's he's like a wannabe wild card like he kept talking to him he's like you're a wild card you're you're a wild guy or whatever and but he's asking him all these questions. He's like, how many bombs have you defused? And he's, he's like fan, he's like fanning over Jeremy Renner's character, but it's so like hopped up and macho and masculine. And he's in like the way it's shot. He's looking down at Jeremy Renner and he's got his helmet on and it, it, there is a tension in the scene because Jeremy Renner has just done something reckless and he's leaned back and he's all casual and he's smoking a cigarette. He's not prepared. I kept expecting that tension in the scene to like break and for this 
commanding officer to maybe like discipline him and that he was kind of like trying to fake jeremy renner's character out and like get him to let down his guard and then be like never do that again it very much reads like that like you and i it's just there's a that sort of flip and trying to trick him into getting comfortable i've seen people do that in positions of power before and i was expecting it but the fact that he doesn't reflects what you were talking about emma that disconnection going on right there because he doesn't really know what's going on he's asking questions he's living vicariously through this bomb disposal person because he views what he does as the ultimate sort of adrenaline thrill getting that close to death but defying it over and over again my observation on on the like therapist character colonel therapist character was far <laughs> maybe this might be darker but when he's like oh you know going to war is a once in a lifetime experience my first thought was well not for the guys that we keep sending back to iraq and afghanistan it isn't you know in in 04 yeah but by now you know some people are on third fourth fifth deployments to these same places um and so i i i kind of like darkly chuckled at that and just said out loud like well not so much anymore um, like, well, and, if you know the end of the movie, you 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 know it's like darkly ironic yeah. already because he immediately goes back. Right. I was just gonna say, like the in terms of personalities, uh, for the for the variety of characters that are in the movie, they did like a really good job of like juxtaposing a a, a bunch of different personalities. When I was first watching it. I was thinking to myself that like, and I saw this in a lot of the like critical reviews too, that like people were saying that, um, Jeremy Renner's character, Staff Sergeant William James, like is, was far too like, um, like an adrenaline junkie and like no one would take the risks. Like in real life, no one would take those risks. And like we had said before, like this is, this is a movie. So it's that it, it, some, some sense, sense, whoa some exaggeration or essentialization is going to happen um but then i was reading uh, then like i watched it again and i was thinking to myself i was like well maybe someone like in this specific role might need to be like a little bit like less fearful and maybe like edging on more like not i'm not reckless but like ha like has the confidence to you know be in like these comp uh, potentially compromising situations and not like totally freak out like be able to stay like calm and collected and all that kind of stuff that kind of requires a little bit of an adrenaline junkie personality and that's why i thought it was interesting that a lot of the reviews were like oh this type of personality would never be on a team like this or never take these types of actions i think they were just hyping up the like adrenaline junkie personality to make it like obviously clear that he's this way um but i do think like in real life that someone in his position is going to have at least like a higher threshold for like fearful situations they can stay calm in, um, which is going to require a little bit of like that adrenaline junkie attitude. The movie opens with that quote, right? Right up front is something like, you know, um, war is a drug. Basically. The rush of battle is a potent and often lethal addiction for war is a drug. Yeah. And, and so, so, you know, and obviously we see that with the, 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 Jeremy Renner with Will James's character that he, you know, that he ends up going back because he can't give up that adrenaline rush. Um, but that's such a classic 
um, you know, not just war movies, but war books, you know, going back hundreds of years, um, you know, the notion that some people go, some, some men, it's almost all men in these books, that they go to war and they react differently. Um, you know, and that even the people who are like most gung ho when they sign up, um, you know, they get to the battlefield and maybe they, you know, it turns out that they're quite afraid when they get there. Um, and then others aren't. And then some become basically sort of addicted to it and to going back um, over and over. And so, you know, I think you're absolutely right. I think the the character is just massively exaggerated and, and the sort of the ridiculous things he does, like pulling off all his protective gear, you know, at one point. I mean, that's that's Hollywoodized. Um, but the, the underlying sort of character trait of he's looking for bigger and bigger thrills, um, you know, I, I think that's that's quite realistic and quite consistent with how we have understood war in fiction for a long time. The film obviously won a ton of Academy Awards, won Best Picture, Best Directing, Best Film Editing, Best Sound Editing, Best Sound Mixing, all basically ran the gamut at the Academy Awards. And I I was curious what you guys thought of the more so like the aesthetic and like filmography of the movie and like the visualizations and what you thought um, how the uh, movie was filmed added to like the whole experience of watching it. I liked it a lot. I mean, I, I thought the, the cinematography was great. Um, the sound of the like fighter aircraft going overhead, you never see them. They never actually do anything, but in a lot of the scenes, especially when they're in the urban areas, every few minutes, you just hear like this sound. And I thought that, I thought that was very immersive of like, yeah, you know, if you're in an active combat zone, you're probably hearing that a lot. Um, and it's just part of the background noise. And I kept on thinking um, when I first saw the movie way back when I was an undergrad, I rewatched it a couple times for this. But I remember thinking when I first saw it all those years ago, like, what are the planes for? Like, right. My brain kept on going like they wouldn't have put that in there if it wasn't important. But it's not. It's just part of like the sounds of military operations. And it's like, oh, okay. I thought that did a good job of putting you in it. I liked that there wasn't too much of a soundtrack. Uh, there there was some, but it was very instrumental. Um, I, is there any actual score in the movie or is it all diage? I don't know if, I don't know don't if this is the case. I don't know if there is so. score or if it's all like diegetic, like it's from sources in... The no, movies. I don't know. If if it is natural, it's natural. There's there's a lot of the scenes where they're disarming bombs. There's a sort of a high pitched overtone. Well, right there's because the, there's that like tinnitus type of thing that, that I think yeah. they're trying to emulate. But I, I I guess so. I guess you can consider that score. Yeah, I mean that makes sense. It does function a lot like music. Yeah. That reminded me of Dunkirk, actually, on the, on the topic of sort of other war movies. Dunkirk yeah. has a lot of, um, for those who've seen it, has a, has a lot of sort of score elements that are basically kind of natural sounds that just build tension. Um, and so it felt a little like that. Um, I mean, obviously, the shaky cam, um, you know, I think a lot of people talked at the time about how that gave, you know, realism in, in war. And I mean, perhaps it does, I think, in this day and age, you know, it could feel a little, you know, Blair Witch Project, right? It doesn't necessarily mean it's a better film because it, it does the shaky cam thing. Um, but, you know, I, I think the fact that it's um, sort of getting right down there with them 
you know, again, it, when you combine that with the vignette style of the film, it does give you this feeling of actually being like embedded with the team um, rather than watching them from a distance, which which is good. Yeah, it has a very documentary cinema verite kind of style where it's like you're seeing things as they unfold, not posed for a camera, except for the few instances where you get these crazy, super stylized explosions like the the first time that we uh, see one with Guy Pierce, or when he finds the the like six strings or when they shoot the last bullet and that like slow motion shot of the shell casing falls onto the sand and it's covered in blood in that like terrifying scene where Eldritch is having to clean the blood off of the magazine. It's just, it's, it's really, it's really, really something. Um, it, that type of like quick cuts and multi cameras, uh, and, and sort of viewing things to me made it feel like it was, you know, you are part of a, a unit. Like there are all these, it, it, so much of the movie and the the tension is derived from them trying to get point of view and have line of sight and get cover from certain things and and position and sort of understanding the space that they are in where blast and shrapnel are going to occur where bullets are coming from how to get cover how to cover each other and so getting all of these shots from various like instances getting shots in the windows long establishing things it it i think kind of tries to replicate the sort of weird you know all of the different stimuli that these people have to take in in these ultra high stress moments yeah i think i I really appreciated like the intentionality behind it so like even though like i'm not typically like a shaky camera fan like i don't necessarily that's not something i enjoy watching necessarily i think it like sir every like element visual elements use like served a purpose which i think is again why this movie got won so many awards and I, I think someone one review i was saying it was like our one review i was reading was saying something ro- along the lines how it was like a near perfect movie which like has to be like i can't imagine movie reviewers say that often if ever um i don't i wouldn't think it's i don't think it's necessarily perfect but um i do think the like intentionality behind both the sound and like the visual elements and the way they filmed the movie is um is really cool and like dunkirk kind of reminds me of that too honestly um now that you're saying that one thing that i just remembered that i thought like was an interesting choice was the at the very very beginning when you're getting the bomb disposal robot who we don't use any other point in the movie it's like they 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 talk about how he's like no i'll go down in the suit and it's like what is if so it's setting up that like they always send in the robot first and then if the, if you know they can't do it then the person goes in we never see the robot for the rest of the movie jeremy renner's like we invested a lot of money into this technology i'm sure um and we're not going to use it fine um and so but when we do get it in the very beginning, you get the the shot from the robot and then all of the shots of these streets 
in Iraq and the sort of sandblasted landscape and it rolling along. And I don't know if it would have had the same effect strictly because of like timing. And I don't know exactly when we were getting pictures from space and what they looked like. But to me, that shot looks like the stuff that we were getting a few years ago from the Mars rovers. Uh, and, and so it gives the film, it, it establishes early on that this is an otherworldly place. It is like a foreign place. It is out of this world. It is, you know, we're in a dangerous, hostile territory. Um, and, and you get these shots and then like empty streets and there's tension in the air and that sort of high ringing sound. Um, but it, it doesn't really use the, the cardinal sin of a lot of movies set in places other than America. There is not a really heavy, like mustard yellow filter over everything, which <laughs> oh, is really, yeah. really nice. It's <laughs> not like, hey, we're in Mexico, so everything is yellow and brown. Um, <laughs> there's a little bit of that, but I think most of it is, is pretty good with the, the sort of color grading of the film. It's pretty accurate. Um, I believe they filmed it in Amman in Jordan, which is like right next door. So it's, uh, but topologically, it, it's quite accurate and they sort of dirtied up the streets and stuff to make it look a little more like Iraq at the time. Um, you know, the other sort of, in terms of place and setting, the, the other thing that I find really interesting is the movie's portrayal of Iraqis. Um, the, I mean, they basically just, they're, just supporting characters like you know if they're if this was a video game those would be the the npcs the non-player characters they they you know maybe they have half a line of dialogue it's probably in arabic anyway nobody on this team seems to speak any arabic the only person we ever see even trying is that uh, is the doctor colonel cambridge um and then there's an interpreter at one point but but from the rest of that you know these people the the team on the ground they don't understand the iraqis the iraqis don't understand them and the reaction that we mostly see from the iraqis um is sort of some combination of just bafflement resentment um you know there's this kid that tries to sell jeremy renner's character um tries to sell him porno dvds um and you know and they have this little interaction over football ball. Um, but that's about as close as we ever get to an Iraqi character being a real human being. Um, you know, they're mostly props. Um, and I, I sort of feel like that may have been an intentional choice. And I don't, I don't much like it as an intentional choice, because what it what it's done is sort of given you, you know, kind of as Landry was saying, it's just this is this alien planet, this team has been dropped here, there's these aliens, and they just have to deal with it. And that was, you know, that was how it felt watching the movie. This is kind of a general question what if that's obviously not an accurate depiction of what happened in iraq um in terms of like the relationship between the iraqis and american soldiers what 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 was that relationship like in general like in i terms mean i would like, say it was inaccurate entirely yeah. inaccurate. I, I, okay i was, okay. I was yeah. gonna say it felt i was just more, curious more yeah <laughs> yeah mean, i mean yeah because i don't know like this is this is one of the big problems i think with you know, nation building at the end of a gun in general, where a lot of the Iraqis in the film, and I imagine a lot in real life are just like, okay, there are new people with guns, most of whom don't speak my language or understand me. And I'm just trying to navigate day to day life while this, you know, foreign military is, is all up in my business. And a lot of, <laughs> a lot of the Iraqis who are like watching 
you know, the scenes where the bomb disposal is going on and the soldiers are very tense and paranoid because any one of them could have a cell phone to detonate the thing and kill someone. Um, a lot of them, you know, presumably aren't insurgents. Uh, they're just like, yeah, something curious is going on. I probably want to, you know, see what, what the hell's happening too. Um, but a lot of, you know, the, the U S troops are like trying to point their rifles in every way possible to keep an eye on them because they don't know what their intentions are. And yeah, I think that's really indicative of, you know, and like Emma said at the outset, like I'm not a combat veteran. Um, and so I don't know, I don't know what it's like. Um, I imagine from, from like reading accounts of people who, who have been over there, that that sounds kind of correct, right? It's, it's very difficult to sort of, you know, try and convince people over there that you're there to help um, when there's a communication barrier. And also it's like you're in a military uniform with a gun. Um, even if the intentions are good, so much can get lost in the confusion uh, and just the the friction of of life that way. Um, so I think that it was, <laughs> I think that it was kind of accurate, especially, you know, if it's set in 04, that's probably a year or so after Saddam is deposed. So the government is still shaky. You know, the security forces are still being reconstituted after debothification. Um, so a lot of uncertainty was in the air. You know, to just to bring it back to something we talked a little bit about earlier, just because sort of Eric mentioning the, the time context, um, you know, one thing that I, I I really didn't like about the movie is, you know, this, this issue that we talked about earlier about, you know, that it was hailed as being apolitical, that it just sort of showed war down in the trenches, um, you know, without getting into any of these issues, without getting into the context. Um, but the thing is, the context is still there. And I feel like one of the jobs of a good filmmaker is to convey some of these experiences to people who, who don't have them themselves. Um, you know, and so I think this film does a really good job of conveying, you know, the terror that perhaps American soldiers felt being among these strange people in a strange land and, you know, not really knowing why they were there. I think it conveys that very well. Um, but it does nothing to talk about the broader political dynamics. Um, and it doesn't educate the viewer at all in sort of what the implications of these things are. I mean, so, you know, Eric already laid out some of the context for IEDs and why those were so important. But, you know, if you zoom out even another level from that, um, a lot of those IEDs came in from Iran um, and were supplied by the Iranian government. And it's one reason why there are still so many people, particularly in the US military, who are opposed to sort of opening diplomatic negotiations with Iran, because there's that impression that it killed, the true impression that it killed so many soldiers during this period. Um, and so that is the kind of context that just is entirely lacking from this, um, from this movie. Um, you know, the broader context of the Iraqi political moment, right? So as Eric says, you know, 2004, this is after Saddam has been deposed, but it's before we really have anything approaching a functioning Iraqi government, um, you know, even mildly functioning. This is basically imperial period when, when we've got Paul Bremer in there and, you know, we're just running the place as a military dictatorship, basically. But again, none of that is in the film. You wouldn't know that from watching this. This could be set at any point during the sort of 15 years that the US military was in Iraq. 
Um, and so I just think that by leaving out so much of that context, um, I think the director, you know, really did a disservice here. Um, this is, this is a war film about war as a phenomenon that's just completely disaggregated from political, the, the underlying political causes that, that actually are the reason we might have the war. Yeah, there's only really two moments. And I think uh, I mentioned one of them before where the guy in the car or in the cab gets, you know, pulled out by American soldiers and arrested uh, for, for driving in the wrong place at the wrong time. And and Matt and mean muggin uh, Sergeant James um, and him saying, you know, if he wasn't an insurgent before he is now. So that's like, you know, a quip about are the things that we're doing actually making the problem worse for ourselves by, you know, having these sort of interactions that go poorly and then people are like, Hey, maybe the insurgents are right about something. The other thing, the other quip was very early in the movie when, um, specialist Eldridge is dry. They're driving around the base and there's a bunch of tanks and he's like, well, good thing we have all these tanks here in case the Russians show up and we need to have a tank battle. Um, which I thought, you know, me being like defense equipment nerd was like, Oh yeah, that's like, <laughs> it's kind of a good point, right? It's like, we've built the military, uh, to respond to sort of one set of ideas and contingencies. And then we're just like plugging it into places like Iraq and Afghanistan and, and hoping it can do the job. And it really is, is like, yeah, you know, we smash the Iraqi military in the uh, pretty easily and then wind up in this, you know, quagmire for decade plus trying to do nation building and counterinsurgency. We're not really that good at it. Um, so you know, those were like the the two moments in the film. Oh, that and the um, you know, war is a once in a, this is a once in a lifetime experience. And then knowing that so many people just keep going back and back and back, either by choice or just their you know that's their orders to do so um, as the GWAT dragged on. Um, but those were really the only moments that you get that kind of broader sort of political questioning or or, or something uh, in the movie. And yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of with, I'm with Emma on this one of like, it, it, it came away feeling somewhat dissatisfied where it's like, ah, like, you know, they're there, you're, you're winking at it, um, but you're not really telling it. And I think maybe at the time people were like, Hey, that's a good thing. Cause politics, <laughs> politics is too much in our day-to-day life. Well, you're going to hate 2020. This won yeah. an Oscar for what they said was its honest portrayal of war, but it left out all of the reasons surrounding the war. And so that's why I, I'll be honest, I'm not a fan of the movie. It's a beautiful movie. It's wonderfully made. I didn't like it. I mean, it's, and I think that that comment, Emma, about, you know, it's an honest portrayal and it leaves out this political context. I think that's part of the problem with, I, I think what that comment gets right is like, yeah, that is how most Americans think about this stuff. And I think it's how most leaders think about this stuff. And it's just, it's the the violence divorced from clear sense of purpose, right? Clear sense of like, what is, you know, what are you in Iraq to do um, after Saddam is gone? What are you in Afghanistan to do after you depose the Taliban, which, you know, we're dealing with right now in the news with the Taliban sort of resurging and, and capturing so many parts of Afghanistan as soon as the U.S. says it's leaving. Um, and I think that, most people in even in the policymaking world, you know, either don't grapple with those questions seriously um, or at all. <laughs> like, what is what is the bigger point here? And don't just tell me, oh, to like 
I think with Afghanistan, for example, the narrative seems to be, well, yeah, I mean, if we stayed longer, then they wouldn't be doing this. It's like, well, we've already been there for 20 years and we spent a lot of time and money training the Afghan National Army and propping up their government. And if they can't effectively resist on their own, what what's the point, right? Are we Do we have to stay there another 20 years or another, you know, what what's the end game here? Um, and I think that's been the big overarching question of the global war on terror, um, including Iraq. I also think um, it's like lack of more like broader context um, is kind of a little bit of a disservice to like a general audience. So like you both obviously watched the film, no, like having a like knowledgeable background of like the overall context of like the 2004 specifically in Iraq. And I think like I, I definitely think this film did a good job of like showing like the general public in terms of like the variety of like roles that soldiers played in Iraq and specific specifically, especially like EOD teams in general. I'm sure like most people who saw this film didn't even know we had teams like that. Um, but like, I think it's a disservice because you would walk away from the movie thinking like about like, Oh, like honest depiction of war. And uh, I guarantee you a lot of people walked away and had no idea what the larger context was or like the um variety of other actors at play um which could have i i wouldn't say i wanted like a heavy hand of political messaging in it because that never does well for a film but like just like context would have been like uh, would have been nicer because even i like looked up some stuff to make sure i was like thinking correctly about what like the setting overall was for the whole film I'm not sure that the average person um, without some knowledge could have picked out that it was in Afghanistan, uh, that it was in Iraq, not even Afghanistan. Oh, yeah. I agree with that. Well, I think, you know, I I think there are war movies that are good that don't, I don't know, they don't quite hit you over the head with the political thing, but like you, you can get it right. And I don't know, I, Apocalypse Now is kind of that way. I I think like, I don't know, when, when I think of that movie, I don't think it's, there, there, it's a lot more of like a moral message or a, you know, I, I don't know. I, I never got the sense watching Apocalypse Now that like, you know, anti-war, anti-war, anti-war type thing. It's just like, but you you come away from it feeling icky, right? About what's happening. And it's not, you don't have like a character who's like the DOD bureaucrat being like, well, we got to do this shady stuff. Um, so I, I think it, it is possible to kind of get at political questions without being too hit you over the head with it. Um, and I think that was one of the critiques I saw of other Iraq war movies that they kind of bash you over the head, like other ones that aren't the Hurt Locker kind of hit you over the head with like a Iraq war bad, Iraq war bad message. And I think that kind of turns people off to the movies but it's, I don't know, there's a way to do that that doesn't, that isn't so overt, but gets you to think. And I don't know, I don't think this movie did it. <laughs> there's a way to do it subtly without completely leaving it out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And now for the time in the show where we get to share all of the other things that we've been enjoying with our time at home. This is Locked In. So, Eric, Emma, what else have you been enjoying as of late? I recently got into watching The Americans, uh, which is, you know, late Cold War um, spy show on FX um, slash Amazon video. Um, I know, like, 
coworker. I don't, I, I bet Emma remembers this, but there was a time where Chris Preble, who's been on the show before, and one of our at least one or two of our other coworkers in the Defense and Foreign Policy Department at Cato were like raving about it on a weekly basis, and I wasn't watching it at the time, so I had no clue. And now I'm yeah, totally enamored with it. Um, great show. Um, the fir- the whole first season is about like missile defense technology and and fears about the Star Wars program. Uh, and the Soviet worried about it. And I'm a huge missile defense nerd, so I really appreciated that. Uh, yeah, highly recommend that. So I um, I also highly recommend The Americans. It's a little amped up, but it's actually one of the more accurate spy shows that's ever been made. So, so highly recommend that. Um, you know, I was thinking like, as I was watching The Hurt Locker again, I was thinking, you know, why do I know most of these terms? And I remembered it's because I watched way too much Mythbusters years ago. <laughs> so, you know, if you watch The Heart Locker and you want to know what Deccord is or what C4 <laughs> is or how big an explosion a certain amount of material might make, go and watch Mythbusters because it's a lot <laughs> of fun. They blow up a lot of things and they do it in a really fun way where nobody gets hurt. When um, they so- did when they did the slow motion shot of the shell casing falling on the ground, I thought it was a Mythbusters shot it looks exactly <laughs> like something they would yes. do i i think i know the shot you're talking like the mythbusters shot you're talking about yeah yeah they use the high speed camera on that one yeah, yeah. and then it, but they don't show the the bullet hitting the giant blob of jelly and going <laughs> so you know just a, a way to enjoy explosions and clear your palate after the hurt locker perhaps um and then you know the other thing i've been enjoying is i've been working my way through these books um the murder bot series by martha wells um and they are did you say murder bots i did say murder okay i'm here for Um, it so they're they're a book uh told from the point of view of an autonomous security robot um well i think it's like an android um he's nicknamed himself Murderbot. Um, and oh, he hacked his own programming okay. and he went rogue. <laughs> but all he really wants to do is sit around and watch his favorite soap operas. Um, and the humans keep asking him to show up to work and kill people. Um, oh, oh so my these, gosh. These are just really funny, really good sci-fi set in this like corporatist future where, you know, so he's owned by a company and the company's own planets. And, you know, so anyway, a really good read. Highly recommend it if you if you enjoy like good sci-fi. I had to put that on my list. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm entering that on my library right now. Yeah. Um, for me, I um, I just got back from a trip. So when I was flying, I watched um, The Outer Banks, which is a good show. It's just like a Netflix um, show. They're they're kind of like treasure hunters almost now. Um, and then I've also, I started reading The Rosie Project, which is really, really good. Um, it's a, it's a shorter book, but it's about a man who is autistic, um, but he works in gene editing and, um, like does gene editing research. And he meets a, he meets a woman who is looking for her father. And it's like going through the story of like how he's, um, helping her find him. Um, but it's really interesting because it's told from his point of view and, and um, he's like trying to learn like the the proper social cues and that kind of stuff to like go and help her find her father. Um, it, it's good. It's a quick read. Um, and I'm hoping to finish that one up soon because after that, I'm going to read uh, the 2034 book. Um, I've had it sitting on my desk for a while now. That's the one by 
Elliot Ackerman and Admiral James, I can't pronounce his last name, Stavridris? Stavidris. Stavidris, um, yeah. Yes. Um, I just finished um, that. It's really is good. Is it good? Mm-hmm. Okay, perfect. Um, so I've had it sitting on my desk for a while, so I'm finally gonna finally gonna crack that one open next. Yeah, let me let me know how it is. I don't know. I've got I don't really like Stavidris. Okay. <laughs> I don't think he's a particularly smart foreign policy commentator, so I was very surprised by the book. I enjoyed it. It started like a Washington fantasy, right? Like um, you know, the Chinese do something nefarious in the South China Sea and blah, blah, blah. and then it actually goes off in a really unexpected direction and um the Americans don't come out well necessarily at the end of it. So uh-huh. I, I actually enjoyed it a lot more than I thought I would. All right. Give uh give him a chance then. <laughs> uh I'm on Ted Lasso season two oh. on Apple TV. I can't get enough. As soon as it's <laughs> over, I get sad and I wait until the next Friday and then I'm happy for a half hour and then I get sad for another week. Ted Lasso is so good. It's a bright light in a dark world. Um, <laughs> I really want to see that, but like Apple TV is the one streaming service I don't have yet. And at this point, it's just like, just get cable. <laughs> I got it on my mom's account. Thanks, mom. <laughs> yeah, I've been listening to this podcast called the Water Margin Podcast. And the Water Margin is this ancient Chinese work of literature. It's up there with like the Romance of the Three Kingdoms um, in terms of like classic pieces of, of Chinese writing. And it's, it's basically this story about a, a set of bandits with very colorful backstories and like just their travels and adventures through ancient China. It, it's sort of like, you know, what if ancient Chinese Dungeons and Dragons and it's just like these guys being quote unquote men of honor, um, which mostly means like screwing over the government as much as they can and, uh, you know, killing people who they want to. <laughs> and then it turns out that some of them are bad after the fact that they killed them. But it's it's a podcast. It's called uh, uh, um, Water Margin, um, which is the, the name in Chinese is like bandits of the, the swamp. That's what, you know, but it literally means water margin. Um it's very good. It's very the, the the narrator for the podcast is a very good job of like being like, okay, so we're about to hear something that's really not great for modern ears, but that's just how it was back then. So don't be mad at me. <laughs> He's, he does a very good job with his delivery. Thanks for listening. As always, the best way to get more Pop and Lock content is to follow us on Twitter. You can find us at the handle at Pop and Lock Pod. That's pop, the letter N, lock, with an E, like the philosopher, pod. Make sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen as well. We look forward to unraveling your favorite show or movie next time. Pop and Lock is produced by me, Landry Ayers, and is co-hosted by Natalie Dowzicki. We're a project of libertarianism.org. To learn more... Visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.